job, Sandy. Thank you. Open your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter five. Let me tell you, if you haven't already caught the clue, Children's Church, you're welcome to send your children that way. It's for K five through fifth grade. So, out this door to my left over here. Ashley, can you help him? Help them find their way. Thank you. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, I'm preaching through the letter of Paul to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians this summer. I'm going to start by asking you a question. How many of you like to camp? All right, staying in a dorm does not qualify as camping, all right? But you like to camp. How many of you like to camp in a tent? That is very good. A lot of you. 40 million Americans camp each year. Now, I know that includes not just tent camping. That includes where you drive your house to a campground. You know, I don't know if that qualifies. I'm sure it does as camping. We have a lot of campgrounds in our area. But, you know, when you've got cable TV and hot and cold running water and 50-inch flat screens in your camper, uh, you know, it's like there's campers that pull in here that are worth way more than my house is. And so if that's your version of camping, that's fine, too. Um, But... Tent camping. I, I haven't gone camping in a tent in years. I did in our younger days, and when our kids were younger, we did that. Uh, I guess part of my problem was the whole time I'm there trying to get comfortable, I'm thinking, I've got a bed at home. And, like, there's not any mosquitoes or creepy crawly things in there, you know, and uh, my feet don't get cold in the middle of the night. Uh, I don't know, but I used to sleep when I was a Boy Scout. I was, like, the only kid in our troop. I didn't know anybody. I slept with my shoes on. Anybody else do that? You get in your sleeping bag and you got your shoes on. In case you got to get in the middle of the night, you don't have to find your shoes. So camping in tents, keep that in mind when you think about That's just something you do for a little while, right? Nobody wants to live there, do you? Anybody here been in the military where you had to, like, live in tents for months on end? There's some of you. I see a few hands that go up. Paul's talking about a tent, and he's talking about our earthly body. The title of the message is A Godly View of Life, and I started to entitle it A Godly View of Death, but that was a little morbid, and I thought, that's going to excite a lot of people. Thank you very much. I came to church on Father's Day to hear a sermon about death, but you've got to understand death to really understand a godly view of life, and so as we look at this passage, you're going to get to see both, really, and trust me, there's good news. Before the sermon's over, there's really, really good news in these 10 verses in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, let me just start by reading the first four verses. And I want you to notice real quickly, Paul uses a word, no. And twice he's going to use it in this passage. This isn't something he hoped for. This is something he knew beyond any shadow of a doubt. He says, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Paul says we know. He's following on verse 18 of the previous chapter where he's talking about the fact we're focusing on things we can't see. We're not just focusing on temporal things, 
things that are seen, we're focusing on things that we can't see. And so Paul says, let, let me tell you about something you can't see. If all you focus on is what you see on planet Earth and you start focusing on your body, the older you get, what happens to your body? It starts breaking down. Now, this is particularly poignant for me because my mom just died about two weeks ago. We, we had a funeral service for my mom, who's 96 years old. And over the last few years, we watched her body break down. She got to where she really couldn't hear. She couldn't see. My mom wouldn't admit that she couldn't hear. When my dad was still alive, he had had some physical therapy. She said, he needs speech therapy because I can't understand it. And we said, Mom, the rest of us understand him fine. You need a hearing aid. She said, hearing aids are for old people. I'm thinking, you're 96 years old. How old you got to be to be considered old? But her body was breaking down, and at 96 years old, she went on to be with the Lord, and we had a funeral service for her. And so a lot of what I thought as I prepared this sermon really was thinking about her. And so I don't want to be overly graphic or morbid. I don't want to bring up bad thoughts. I really want you to see how good the news is. Paul says, this tent, this terrestrial residence, this abode is temporary. And it's also interesting to know, does anybody know what Paul did for a living? He made tents. Did you know that? It tells us in the New Testament that Paul didn't just preach for a living. In fact, he probably didn't make any money preaching. So he had to have a real job. He made tents for a living. So I'm thinking, Paul, this was very graphic for him. Paul's thinking these fabric facilities, these temporary little dwellings that I'm making, he was comparing that to our bodies, saying, you know what, we're kind of like this. This temporary dwelling, if it is torn down, literally to demolish or dissolve. So if this, our body, is dissolved, this tent is dissolved, we have something to look forward to. The earliest memory that I can remember, I, I grew up in a home where we moved when I was about five years old, and I can't remember much about our first house. I drive by it every now and then in Macon, Georgia, and, and look at it and kind of remember, man, that backyard, I used to think that was huge. Our backyard, you probably couldn't fit the stage in it, but it just seemed big to me. One of my earliest memories was we had a tent, and I mean, pretty big tent. Just had some poles, didn't have a floor in it. It was just a canvas tent. And I remember playing with a sparkler in the backyard one day, and one of the sparks hit that tent, and it just, poof, I mean, it was like, a guy came running up with a, gar with a hose trying to put it out, but by the time he got there with any water, it was gone. And that's the mental image I want you to get when Paul says, this tent will one day dissolve. It's really going to be gone. So you ask yourself the question, so why do we spend so much time focusing on preserving this? Now, I'm not talking about preserving it while you're living. Okay? If you're going to the gym, that's a good thing. If you're eating right, that's a good thing. Keep doing that exercise, take care of the body, because it's a gift from God, right? But planning my mom's funeral service, meeting with a funeral director, and realizing the thousands of dollars you can spend to buy this ornate casket and embalming and all of those things, and just thinking, why, why do we do that? The body, you're just slowing down a natural process. This body's going to decay. We're not going to use it again. The casket that you're going to stick in the ground why are you spending so much money on it? We're, you're not going to use it again. Nobody's going to see it. <laughs> and so Paul says, understanding that, here's our hope. 
Understanding our earthly tent. Here's the hope. We have a building from God. Now, I want you to see the difference in words that he uses. The word he uses for tent literally is a temporary structure. An abode, a temporary dwelling. The word he uses for building is a word of architecture and structure. It's on solid footing and foundation. It's fixed. It's secure. It's permanent. Would you agree it is superior to a tent? For the Apostle Paul, who faced death nearly every day of his life, realize as this body is being broken down, it will one day dissolve. It's going to go back to dirt. But I've got a hope. As a believer, as a Christian, somebody who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not going to stay a tent. There's a building that God is going to give me. Two things he said about it. It's not made with hands. Literally, it's an unmanufactured structure. It's, it's not an artificial one. It's something that God is creating, made by God, and it's eternal in the heavens. So get the, get the picture. Earthly dwelling is a tent. When you die, what's going to lay in that casket is your earth suit. That's what it is. You're not there anymore. Temporary. Decaying. Will be gone away, dissolved. Tent. You compare that with something not made with hands, but made by God. And it's not temporary, it's eternal. As a believer, you're going to be given a new body. That, that gives us hope. You know, people who've kind of given up on the one we've got. It gives us hope that we've got one that God is going to give us a brand new body. That won't have any of the physical limitations and ailments that we struggle with in this one. That's what Paul's hope was. And then he, he gives some more parallels. He says, in this tent, we groan and we long to be clothed. We groan. Literally, we sigh. We murmur. We're burdened. I, I got some good news for you. Your new home in heaven, there won't be any sighing. There won't be any tears. There won't be any groaning. There won't be any burden. You won't be weighed down. And Paul says, we don't want to be, in, right now, we don't want to be unclothed. We want to be clothed. Because here's the good news. What is mortal is going to be swallowed up. Literally, the picture you should get is if you just die of thirst and you get a glass of water and you just swallow it completely whole in one swallow. Paul says what's mortal what we can only see is the mortal stuff. So when we go to funerals, one of the reasons we grieve is we don't see the other side for the believer. It seems so permanent, and it's not. What's permanent is eternity. That body was just temporary. And so Paul said it's swallowed up. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. One is Philippians 1. Paul really struggled. I think Paul, when he wrote this, he thought, there's, there's really kind of three choices for me, Paul's thinking. Number one, I hope, I'd like to still be here when Jesus returns. I think if you had given Paul his choice, his preference, he thought Jesus was coming back soon, and he is, but it's been nearly 2,000 years. I think Paul would have said, if I can still be here when Jesus returns, and so that my, I'm changed in the twinkling of an eye. I think his second choice would have been to go on and be with the Lord. His third choice was to remain. But look what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 24. It says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for this is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. That was Paul's attitude. Paul said, you know what? If they're getting a bus to go to heaven today, I'm ready to get on it. But I'm not going to get on it because it's not God's will yet for me to be on that bus. He's still got a plan for me. Let me, let me read just a passage from Revelation just to give you a picture that John gives us. The end of Revelation, chapter 22, 21 and 22. Just a few select verses. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Listen to this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Then in verse 1 of chapter 22, he said, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will be no longer any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, for they will not have any need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Just a glimpse. And that's all we get, just a glimpse. We know that heaven is so much better. And so Paul says, I view my earthly body as just a tent. It's a temporary dwelling. God's using it for a purpose right now. But that's just, that's just my earth suit. So he moves on to his earthly tent. I don't know about you. I don't know if you wonder, what's that going to be like? John wrote in 1 John 3, 2. He said, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it's not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know this. When he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. Whether that happens if Jesus returns in the next few days or if that happens at your death, there's going to be a day where we will all change. In fact, it says in the twinkling of an eye. I like the way Paul put it. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. I've always thought that was a good verse for the nursery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. There's a little different meaning here. What's going to be changed? You are. This earthly tent is going to be changed. So let's look what Paul says about it. Paul says, he who has prepared us. Let me read the next few verses, 5 through 8. He says, now, he who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul says we have our future home 
And God's prepared us for this very purpose. What purpose is he talking about? He's talking about the purpose he's just talked about and the fact that we're not going to be unclothed. We're going to be clothed. And so because he's prepared us for that very purpose, he's given us a pledge. He's given us the Holy Spirit. In fact, the word pledge there is where we get the word earnest from. If you're going to go buy a house, you give them earnest money. What does that mean? It means I intend to buy this house. This is kind of a down payment, really more than that. This is my pledge. This is my promise that I'm going to show up at closing, and I'm giving you a few thousand dollars now, and one day going to give you the rest of it. What's God given us as a pledge of his promise? He's given us the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit's activity within Paul's life that has given him this longing for what he's going to experience in heaven. And that's why Paul says, you know what, I'm, I'm really torn. Whether I would be absent from the body and present with the Lord, or right now I'm absent from the Lord, present with the body, I'm, I'm here right now. And certainly he had a relationship with God, but he meant by more than that, that one day I'm going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. What happens when you die as a believer? That right there happens. You're absent from the body and present with the Lord. What a great promise. So he says, therefore. I love that when it's in Scripture because it's basically saying, because all this is true, therefore, be of good courage. In other words, be without fear. When we view death, we view it with such fear because we don't understand it. That's why we have to come to Scripture. And allow God to explain to us, be of good courage, knowing while at home, literally to be in one's own country, we're at home, we're absent from the Lord. Absent meaning to go abroad, to vacate, to be absent from home. While we're at home, we're absent from our future home. Be of good courage. Why? Because we walk by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when you come to a word like faith, some people think, well, I guess I just have to have blind faith. And faith, yes, faith is about something you don't see, but it's way more than that. I, I used to take a chair to describe faith, and I'd pull a chair up and said, you know, y'all all demonstrated faith by sitting in your chair or in your pew. Pews might be a little more substantial than chairs are, but have you ever gone to sit, young people, have you ever gone to sit in a chair and it wasn't there when you went to sit in it? See, I had an older brother who just thought it was real funny. And I should have called on, when your older brother is saying, here, sit here, and he's still holding the chair, something good is not about to happen. Have you ever gone to sit in a chair that broke when you sat in it? Don't raise your hand. Chair's really not faith. Why? Because you can see the chair. Faith is about things we don't see, and yet we know God. And so it's more than just a blind faith. Why? Because we know God. And the longer you walk with God, the deeper your relationship with God gets, the more your walk is not going to be about sight. It's going to be by faith where you're stepping out into areas where you don't see what's going to happen next. Best illustration. I've used this before. I was, I was heading to lunch over near Walmart on 544, and I parked in the parking lot, and I'm trying to walk up to get to what used to be a Chinese restaurant. Now there's actually a Japanese restaurant there. Maybe they deeded that. It's got to be Asian. I don't know, but it was Chinese. Really good place to eat. Now there's a good Japanese place to eat there. 
And I was crossing, and I noticed this lady came out of the door by herself, and I could tell she couldn't see. She was blind. And there's two-way traffic between me and her. And they're just going. I'm thinking, lady, please don't step off. You know, I'm thinking, I need to get over there and stop her. She's about to step off into traffic. But she didn't move. The two ladies she was with must have been paying the bill. When they stepped out, they came and one took her by one arm, the other one took her by the other arm, and she stepped right out. Now, she knew there was traffic, but she stepped out in faith in those ladies. Why? Because she knew them. They had taken care of her in the past. They had never led her astray. And so even though she couldn't see, her faith was well-placed because she knew these people. So, folks, the deeper your understanding of God gets, the more your walk in the Christian life is about faith, but it's not blind faith. It's a faith of knowing God. As Paul says, even though we can't see what's future, we've just caught some glimpses. God's taught us a little bit about it. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so we can be of good courage, preferring rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And we'll wait on that day. In God's timing, it will come. Don't get overly anxious for it, because if you do, you may not be doing what God wants you to do now. And then the last thing. Last two verses. Our present ambition. This is good. Paul says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. These last two verses, pay attention because it's important. Paul said, here's our ambition. Paul's already said, you know what, I'd really rather be absent from here and present with God, but until that day comes, whether it's here or there, here's the goal of life for me. Here's my ambition. I want to please God. I want to one day, I think this is Paul speaking, and I echo this. I want to one day hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to please God. He said that's our ambition. The word ambition was not necessarily a good word in Greek culture. In fact, it was a word in Roman and Greek culture used of politicians canvassing for votes. It was a word that really meant kind of, here's my ambition. And really and truly in our day and age, a lot of ambition is selfish. It was used for those with no convictions who sought promotion at any cost. And so Paul's taking a word that didn't necessarily have a good connotation and gave, gave it a good connotation. He says, well, if you've got ambition in life, Here's what that ambition ought to be. The thing that marks you, the thing that's more important to you than anything else, rather than pleasing yourself or promoting yourself, would be this, that you would be pleasing to God. How different our lives would be if that's what we thought every day of our life, if we thought, today, God, I want to please you. Today's not about me. Today's about pleasing you. And then Paul puts it in real clear perspective in verse 10. Because we're all going to appear before him. We all. Paul's including himself in that, and I'm including all of you in that. All of us must, it's necessary, appear before him. Now, what, what kind of judgment is this? The word used for judgment seat is the word bema. 
And I want you to understand that because there's another judgment talked about in Scripture called the great white throne judgment. That's where everybody will go. If you don't know the Lord, that's the the place you don't want to be because that's where the sheep get separated from the goats. And the people who have not trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior are separated from him for eternity. Not a good thing. The Bema seat is actually a good thing. This isn't about sin. This is about deeds. And whether your deeds are good or bad. The word Bema in their culture was used actually for the athletic games. It was a picture of a platform that had steps leading up to it. And if you competed in the Olympic Games or any athletic sport or contest, what you wanted to receive at the end was a crown they would place on your head, a wreath or garland they'd place on your head if you won. And Paul's saying, using that same imagery, that same word, to say we're all going to appear before the judgment seat. For what? To be recompensed. That's a good word. It literally means to provide for to receive back what is due, to take into kindly keeping according to what you've done. Now, remember, this isn't about sin. The Bema Seed is not about him saying you're a sinner separated from me. That happens at the white throne judgment. This is for believers. All of us will appear before this Bema Seed. And the two words that he uses, word good means profitable, generous, virtuous. The word bad means fouled or flawed, literally worthless, or useless. Paul's already talked about this with the Corinthian church. So if you got your Bibles and want to flip back one book to 1 Corinthians, let's catch a picture of what he's talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. It'll be on the screen. Paul's talking about rewards. And i got to tell you, I don't totally get this. I read in Scripture where some of the rewards are crowns. But the only thing I see that we do with those crowns is we place them at the feet of Jesus. I don't think that it's a time of shame in the sense that, you know, I'm going to get a better house than you do. But I'm not sure what it means. It could mean that you're given more responsibility in heaven. You're rewarded some way. But look what Paul, the way he put it in 1 Corinthians 3.11, he says this. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw... Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. What's Paul talking about? Paul's saying, while you live your life on earth, live your life to be pleasing to God. Check your motives. I think there's some of us that we think, well, hey, look at all this stuff I've done from God, for God. You've already gotten your reward. If you've sought to be self-seeking, you may have done some good stuff, but your motives were impure. Paul says we're going to appear before God and be recompensed. He's going to reward you for good deeds. The worthless ones, what's going to happen with them? They're just going to be burned up. Those are the wood, hay, and stubble. And I like his imagery. He said, you'll still get into heaven, but it's kind of like your britches are going to be on fire. Because there was nothing of all the stuff you've done. It all burned up. And so there's coming a day when we're going to see Jesus face to face. He's going to welcome us in his kingdom. If you're a child of God, you spend eternity with God. Why? Based on your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
where people get mistaken here is they're thinking, I'm doing all these good deeds to earn salvation. It doesn't work that way. Salvation is a gift from God. It's by grace. We don't earn it. But here's the good news. Once you come to Christ, He's got a plan for your life. The same passage in Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about, for by grace we're saved, verse 10 says, we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So what does that mean? That means God doesn't want me to be a pew potato the rest of my life. You know what a pew potato is? You know what a couch potato is, right? Pew potatoes are kind of the way it works at church. Couch potato means you sit at home on the couch watching TV all the time. You don't even get up. You just ask one of your kids to get you stuff. (laughs) We now have remote control so we can change the channel ourselves. We hadn't figured out how to get something to drink from the kitchen. But pew potatoes are worse because it's pew potatoes just, hey, yeah, I've gotten this relationship with God, but I'm just kind of occupying space for the rest of my life. That is not God's plan for your life. Students, God's got a plan for your life. Ask Him. Ask Him, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And I promise you the answer is going to be be pleasing to Him. Now, He'll give you some specifics of how that will flesh itself out. But you're not doing any of that work on your own. God hadn't kicked you out of the nest and said, okay, do your best, make me happy. He's indwelling you with the Holy Spirit so that He can accomplish those things that He wants you to do. So we live our life simply saying, God, here I am, use me. I want my life to be pleasing to you. Let's pray together. Father, we truly don't really understand all that we read about rewards. And God, the truth is, if the only reward was we get to spend eternity with you in heaven, isn't that enough? But God, the truth also is, we as your children want to be found pleasing by you. So God, thank you for calling us to yourself. If we're your children, if we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, thank you that you've got a plan for us. And God, if there's someone in this place that's never trusted you in that way, they're not a Christian yet. Then Lord, the first thing that they need to do is come to you by faith. And accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Acknowledge their sin. Their separation from God. But God, the majority in this room would say, oh yeah, I've done that. I'm I'm a Christian. Then God, I pray we would spend time examining our lives to simply ask the question, Lord, am I doing what you've called me to do? You've got a plan for me. Not, not just for the paid preachers or ministers, but you've got a plan for my life. God, thank you that one day we'll see you face to face. One day we're going to lay this earthly, temporary tent aside. And you've got a building prepared for us that's going to clothe us for eternity. Thank you for that. So God, speak to us now. Lord, don't let this sermon become a a quick, distant memory. But Lord, even tomorrow and the next day, would we ask ourselves the question every day, Or we give every day to you and simply say, God, this day is yours. Use it as you will. I want to be pleasing to you. May we start every day that way. We make this our prayer in Jesus' name.